listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome a group of incredible writers from New York University's Distinguished Graduate Creative Writing Program. They'll be reading for us, and after that, they'll be joining each other in conversation to talk more about their work. Before I introduce everyone, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing, and you can always shop online 24-7 at www.skylightbooks.com. First up, I'd like to introduce you to Garrett Karai. When the pandemic started, Karai convened a Zoom workshop group comprised of today's writers who live worldwide from Bulgaria to Brooklyn. Garrett Karai writes about the big sleep and the little death. His poems reside in Nikkei Uncovered, a poetry column in the Japanese American National Museum's Discover Nikkei website, Carrie Chang's Lotus Magazine, Cal State LA's Statement Magazine, and the Penn Sound Audio Archive. An LA native, he teaches and occasionally DJs. Thanks so much for being here with us, Garrett. Thank you for having us, Natalie. <laughs> um, I'm excited to uh, share this group. There's um, many um, exciting poets uh, in this group. Um, as Natalie mentioned, I started this group during the pandemic and during times of spiritual, um, political, economic, and health crisis, I think is always, uh, you know, it's a ripe time for poetry. <laughs> um, so I'd like to, uh, we're gonna do this in semi-autobiographical order, uh, starting with uh, Nellie Bridge. Nellie is a poet and high school teacher living in Sofia, Bulgaria, with her 12-year-old daughter. In 2019, fellow poet Rodrigo Rojas translated a chapbook of her poems, Poemas Sueltos, for the Festival Internacional de Poesia de Santiago, Chile. Feel free to correct me if I butchered the pronunciation. Uh, otherwise, uh, Nelly, take it away. Thanks so much um, to Natalie and Garrett and everybody. I'm going to read one poem, and this is a poem um, I wrote recently about my first spring in, in Sofia, Bulgaria, for this group uh, as part of our workshop. So it's called Mulberry. Mulberry. My neighbor raised in Sofia told me a tree I see from my window is an old, old mulberry, too tall to bear fruit that our streets were the outskirts of the city years ago. And on these blocks for generations, the apples, pears, and quince trees were carefully pruned and grafted. That she'll show me the tastiest mulberries down a certain alley in June 
that in September, she picks the best apples on her evening walks. Now in May, this mulberry is bare among the other trees, green and blooming. For example, the chestnut outside my kitchen window that raised its buds like fists for weeks before they burst with drama, almost sound, almost music, falling into green cloaks, draping every branch, so thick now it hides the mountain. But I know something. Trees and flowers bloom on their own schedule. I know my mulberry tree is going to leaf out later. I wink at the bare branches. I know they're not as brittle as they look. And last fall, I remember it was last to lose its leaves. Surprising me for long weeks with delicate, stubborn sheets of gold. I wondered if they'd drop at all. Staying put as company for months into the cold, gold, yellow, and then one day walking home, all of them had fallen. And though this is my first spring here, I still know something. There is timing to observe. I like the early ones, the late ones, sticking out among and against. I like this tree. Thank you so much, Nellie. That was wonderful. And um, next, let's go to Aaron, Aaron Balkan. Aaron's work can be found in Fence, Harper's, and American Poetry Review. He's also author of a novel, The Book of Dumb. He grew up in Arizona, but lives in New York. Um, take it away, Aaron Balkan. Hey, guys. Hello. How's Good to going? see you. Good. How's LA? You look like you're in Hawaii, though. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I am in LA, and uh, I'm off for the summer. And I am, I don't know, we have a pool, so the shirt, it's Hawaiian beautiful. shirt. It looks vast. Oh, I just realized what you're talking about. Yeah, I have a, a Zoom <laughs> background, and I don't know how that background got there it's not I, my chosen background it's probably your ch your child my um, child oh yeah that's probably what happened <laughs> that's what my kids do yeah <clears throat> all right uh i'm gonna read this real fast so i can get through it it's a long poem um and it's called uh smell of the sun not my wife asleep in the next room not my sister waking up somewhere above Beijing, or my father standing at the canyon's edge staring down the coyote who just shit by the side of the house. Not the coyote bored with the psychodrama heading back down the ravine. Because there were so many rivers on which to float, I chose. And putting drunk back inside the packet boat, it took me only eight hours to figure out who was the rudder. The fields we drifted past were empty, except for one, where on a tree stump set back from the banks, a crank up gramophone played. Many times you've lingered around my cabin door. These women were pouring beer for famous bearded writers. They lay plates of kielbasa and beer steins before them. And the men, they clanked their steins, they toasted to drift, which is like skateboarding through cemeteries, Olmsted's Greenwood, Bernstein, Basquiat, for the Brooklyn dead. 
past the public mausoleum we once once we the public mausoleum we once stopped to inspect the sign that says all guests are welcome to leave artificial flowers they're made from crepe paper dyed pinks that stain the yellows with spines of choreographed wire Letter to myself, Berkeley, 2004. I wake from the smell of the sun, re-rotting the head of a giant sturgeon resting in the bathtub planter outside my window. The coffee is strong and the milk is only slightly sour. A mechanical bird I can't see guides me across every living street. Today, I walk past two of my old buildings, the chain link fence I used to lock my bikes to on nights they were to be stolen and an intersection where, loveless and confused, I often made a soft left. When a man in People's Park offers me a dried pig's ear, I beg off. So he dumps the entire contents of the greasy bag into my lap and storms back under the charred apple tree. In People's Park, to refuse generosity is to invite nothing but pig's ears. To ask the woman why she needs to bang those pots and pans and snarl at oncoming traffic is to invite, happy fuck the police day. To stand, to go forward into silence, the cost is enormous, too much for one life. In the meantime, as I walked around having feelings. Days like today, I walk to the park without books or iPod and listen and sit and listen to wives speaking Polish, Russian? And the silent husband who comes now to join them, like me, just sort of listening, not listening, just being with background. A horse wanders by with no rider, no rider, that horse. The skies, Arizona highways, magazine shredded into pieces, the mud is, the ground is mud packed tight and cold. The horse is real, but viewed through the hatchback, it looks so much like the movies and you, you just sit back and take it so easy. The soundtrack is John Stewart, the Kingston Trio guy, the song about the blind horse driver, the hardiest of all horse shit. It's got lines like, about those good old days, well, the old lady deprived, replied, well, there were just a lot of people doing the best that they could. And then the lady said they did it pretty up and walking good. Up and walking meaning motherfucking. And as for the old campaigner, darkness, my name is Dennis Johnson. Mattress, my name is John Dos Passos. Dad, I like the email you wrote about the coyote, the one where he cracks the thin layer of bird bath ice with the tap of his muzzle, then walks to the house of the side of the house to shit. If you don't need it for your poem, Thank you, Aaron. That was very punk rock. Um, let's see. Next, I think we have Taj Greenlee. Um, Taj uh, Greenlee has been anthologized in Roll Call, a generational anthology of social and political Black literature and art. He is associate director of the prestigious New York City 92nd Street Wise Talks series. Previous Previously, Taj was a talent booker for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, The Gail King Show, and PBS. He really likes the forgiving process of cooking soups. 
And you're up, Taj. Thanks, Thanks Garrett. Thank you. My first job. The Western Steer was a local family-owned steakhouse, kitschy cowboy-themed, lassos, a small mechanical horse that ate quarters, set out front, and had seen better days. Too many children imitated screen moves and cracked its back. Spiderweb patterns of cotton burst red banquet booth plastic from too many family meals celebrating accomplishments. That they'd made it through another year, that Susie had poorly played piano at a recital, that those people lost the game. This was my first job outside of family. I bust tables, sturdy plastic tub wedged to hip as storage for the aftermath of a meal. I learned quickly you stack the plates so the dishwasher, also me, can easily empty the tubs before a return trip to collect more. The uneaten petite filet, the nibbled, the slurped and sopped gravy streaks, the picked apart and eaten around, the wet and shiny gristle, celery stalks, parsley, cold half catsup covered home fries, buttered shells of seafood split and forlorn, quartered burgers for children more interested in crayons than overcooked proteins, many a retainer, waddled money sometimes, a jeweled ring, the tables an explosion of dinner misunderstood that unseen hands made dishes and my young brown hands took those plates away and splatters away. After two months, all the waitresses told me I did great on a busy holiday Friday. Endless families lined at the blonde hostess for their chance at Western Steer. Consume and then home to live the lives you'd expect. I gathered plates and washed dull knives and moved through it all like I liked it like money wasn't involved and jobs were just how we spend hours when we're not sleeping or being loved. When the last kindness of people left, tipping too little, Gloria, the head waitress with the most tables, handed me my share of gratuity. She said, we trust you as one of us now. In my hands was almost triple the amount of money I'd made during past shifts. I wasn't good at math, but I instantly knew they'd been cheating me not sharing the proper percentages. I smiled and thanked them and walked out, never returning. Thank you, Taj, wonderfully read, uh, great poem. Let's see, Viola Lee. Viola Lee has recently published poems in Bellevue Literary Review, Literary Mama, Hong Kong Review, Crosswinds Poetry Journal, and another Chicago magazine. She has poems forthcoming in Crazy Horse, B-O-A-A-T, um, Lotus Magazine, and After Hours. She lives in Chicago with her husband, son, and daughter, and she teaches first, second, and third graders at Near North Montessori School. Uh, Viola Lee. Okay, I'm gonna read uh, two poems. The first one is called, the title's really long, but the first one is called After an Argument About How We Have Too Much Shit in the House and How You Use the Term Our House Looks Constipated Right Now. And afterwards, we both agreed that we need to save money for braces for the two of them. And yes, they need to practice music and reading. Oh, lover, 
O grand pupil of my eye, oh, let me do the dishes tonight endlessly. Let me, even though I hate them tonight and forever. And because I am that sorry, I will even take charge of the bath time and bedtime routines. Oh, sweet treat of salted caramel swirled in oat ice cream. Oh, let's play endless rounds of Monopoly. Oh, please take Kentucky Avenue for 220. Oh, supporter of eco-friendly toothpaste such as Tom's of Maine. You are so hot and you do things right. Oh, supporter of Burt's Bees and everything natural. You make great nori rolls and you're better than St. Thomas Aquinas. Oh, close reader of Great James and Sweet Peach. Oh, and one more in Dear Charlotte's Silk. Oh, the kids, you and I always wake up angry and we don't know why. Oh, I love you to the moon and back, so much so that I would drive 14 hours through the pits of hell in between mountains and foothills to reach you, to be with you so that you could finally sleep. Oh, lover, oh, pupil of my eye. Oh, in this life, I choose you. Oh, you, I choose you, oh, route to walk to bend, oh, to move in and out of the earth with, oh, sweet lover of mine. This apology is also a marriage vow. And then the second poem is called A Dream of Death. When I died, I finally understood that the world is a crisp potato fried in avocado oil. I am elated I never married blank, especially since he demanded we go to Pier 1 Imports for the second time in a row that weekend to look at Papazon chairs as if we were birds or ships or something else being carried on a journey towards death. No one wants to begin a life at Pier 1 Imports. No one, not the cauliflower, not the yellow and white cotton summer onesies, not the teacher singing kinky reggae, for the second time in a row to celebrate the summer solstice, which happens to fall on the same night as the full moon drum circle, not the poem titled, The Poem to the Militant Vegan and includes these four words. I love Big Macs, not the grapefruit essential oil rubbed all over the bottom of my husband's feet and definitely not the ashes of my father-in-law sitting in a bag in the garage. I will say what I have been meaning to say all of my life, but never have had the courage. May all our deaths resemble marriage ceremonies. Wow, that felt good. Let me say it again. May all our deaths resemble marriage ceremonies. Thank you. What a, what a great ending. Um, thank you for your humor and um, your holiness. <laughs> I think uh, you find the holy in in your surroundings. Um, next up, we have uh, Lucina Protsko, a Polish-American poet immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 19. She received a PhD in English from SUNY Alb Albany. Her poetry has appeared in Five Points, Ellipsis, Quiddity, Cutthroat, Salamander, Washington Square, Fugue, and other literary journals and anthologies. Her first collection of poems, Infinite Beginnings, was a winner of the Bright Hill Press Poetry Book Competition, judged by Joan Larkin. She lives in upstate New York, where she has been teaching English and creative writing for many years. And um, correct my pronunciation if I messed up, please. <laughs> Lucina. Thank you, Garrett. 
Uh, I'll read two poems. The first one is called In the Cellar. The cellar is the underbelly of the house and in its moist cavern, a toad sits on a secret pearl, glistening like an unshelled egg, almost transparent. I can make out random shapes as if in a kaleidoscope, but no visible principle. And the potatoes and soil, worms make their tortuous corridors and beckon children afraid to misstep in the darkness. I descend toward the door. It opens and in the light, strangely soft, almost opalescent, as if in the camera obscura, a single fly wavers between the tiny window and the stench of meat my mother has salted into metal cauldrons. There isn't enough room for me, but I am mesmerized by the light. The single ember ray falling across the heap of potatoes. The workers carry the new meat on their hands. Skin, fat, bones. I stand in the circle of light, trace my life to its simplest form, witness the sacrifice. I bend my head toward the unknown, my only prayer. No one is there to comfort me. Silence simmers inside me. Globules of light trickle down my throat. And when I finally stumble upon a song, they burst like a newly blown glass or like the most exquisite scream. The second poem is called, My Mother the Thief. When my mother was pregnant at 19, she stole from her husband's grandmother. She planned it for days. At dawn, she sneaked to the chicken coop. On a fresh bundle of straw, my great-grandmother's hand sat inscrutable. My mother's hand felt the underside of truth, warm as a stone heated by the sun. The rust-feathered hen was taken by surprise, still clucking lovingly among the paling stars as my mother ran into the kitchen and slipped the egg into the tin cauldron where potato peels boiled for the pigs. And then she waited while my great-grandmother shredded an old summer into thin ribbons. Some ribbons grew into a multicolored mound next to my grandmother's long pleated skirt. Some hid under it. And then it was ready. Under the apple tree behind the barn, forgetting at last all the lesser saints and major gods, my mother feasted. She told me she heard a strong heart beating when the warm center was revealed. And there, shivering slightly under half-opened flowers, she saw yellow wings curled up safely inside her. I love the imagery in your poems, Lucina. Um, thank you. Next up, we have um, Rodrigo Rojas. Um, a poet from Chile. He's published po four poetry books and another two essays in his country. Um, he currently teaches Shakespeare and translation and Diego Portales, University of Santiago. 
And Rodrigo, did you want to tell us the names of your uh, poetry books and um, books of essays? Yeah, thank you. Uh, the first, the first one would be uh, Desembocadura del Cielo, could be translated as River Mouth of the Skies. Second is Sol de Acero, which is Son of Steel. The other one was written when I knew you all guys in New York, it's called Grand Central. And the last poetry book is called Morning Star, Estrella de la Mañana. That's it. And the, the essays, the one essay book is about translation of uh, poets from the First Nation, from First Nations. And the other one is about the visual arts. I had to be a curator in a big museum for an exhibition. It was my first time and I was so scared that I, my only protection was to write a whole essay about the experience. <laughs> That's it. Okay, so uh, I'll begin. Uh, the first poem, uh, well, both poems are set in Chile. The first one is called On Strikes. I can see my 10-year-old self looking out the window of the car as we approach a barricade on the highway. It's winter, on the background, the snowed mountain range, on the foreground, people with fists raised to the dove gray sky. It was clear that this was a transgression. Who was the silent adult driving the car? Mother, stepfather? My body, an antenna tuned into fear, took the silence as a confirmation. It's 1982, the first general strike against Pinochet. Tires, satellite billows, heavy and dark billows crossed by rubber threads floating upwards inside the car on my lap, a new language. Castor, the brightest, and Pollux, its twin star. I wanted it to be my destination anywhere but here, so when that adult offered me earlier a book with the twin stars on the cover, I accepted. Learning English with Castor and Pollux is fun. I was leafing through it when the car stopped. Anger, hunger in the faces outside. It would take me months to clearly pronounce the difference between the two words. But to me, they were twins born that day. To write a poem on a second language. It's like finding a mirror of absence, a reflection of empty spaces. When you hear an echo at the end of the line, approach it in silence, use your crossbow. At home in the countryside just outside Santiago, there were multiple weapons decorating the walls of my grandfather's study. I now remember a mouser rifle, its bayonet made it seem impossibly long. A Winchester, just like the ones I saw in the four o'clock westerns, a cavalry sword, pistols. This was another language, one spoken on the frontier between my own gains and a precise political statement. It was my family's mother tongue, a mark, a sign on my forehead that I've tried to erase for decades. Lists of words memorized, none truly by heart. 
the second, the third language, the alarming third, have their own electric fields where energy is stored. Move your tongue closer. Feel the lightning strike. Okay, and the second is called Gallery of the Dead, and is set on in front of a collection of ancient artifacts from uh, from the Americas, from Peru, in fact. Gallery of the Dead, an iridescent cloth is under a glass in the museum. It's a skirt, a cape, a crown of some sort. By 700 AC, the Paracas of ancient Peru had become perfect weavers of, bed of bird feathers. To this day, on the fabric's surface, the hairs of the hairs of the woven feathers split the light. But in exhibition is only a cloth framed by text and glass forced into stillness. Sophisticated is the word used in the object label. It adds that this practice, the weaving, was an attempt, not an achievement, but an attempt to represent the beauty of the surroundings. Words fall short, not like in a poem where they fail. To fall short here is to enlighten, to name. This was going to be a long poem about deceit, about museums and living cultures with their familiar objects cased in glass. But then I saw the radiant cloth breathing heavily in front of me. The faint ad admiration of the curatorial note had no life. This robe was there with a whole flock woven into it, scattered in flight, gleaming from all angles, then that flock regrouped as a solar disk. I saw the weavers with their plumed weft threading unconceivable colors for death. I saw a blustery coast, a desert underneath the weight of fog, the funeral procession of a gleaming body under the feathered robe. No tongue, no human palate, nothing we know of can call out the perpetual motion or the temperature of these colors. Go now and put that on a label, describe it, place it in time or in culture. My mouth is nothing but a wet cave, unable to sing about refraction. Thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo. I'm so wowed by Rodrigo's poems and the, the poems of every one of these poets in this workshop. Um, thank you so much, uh, Rodrigo and everyone. Um, Sarah Wallace is the author of The Rival, selected for the Aga Shahid Ali Poetry Prize and the chapbook Edge. Her poetry has appeared in such publications as Agni, Hanging Loose, Michigan Quarterly Review, Poetry Daily, Yale Review, and others. She lives in Brooklyn for the next two weeks and is a future resident of Queens. Sarah Wallace. Um, Thank you, Garrett. Uh, first poem I'm going to read is called The River. Looking at the river, wide, dank green and spiky with fallen branches, shadowed by neatly planted thickets of birch, it's early morning and only a small corner's lit. 
but that riffled water spangles up bright like the hips of a dancing woman in a short sequin dress, beckoning me to the floor as if I could put my hands on her sweaty shoulders and find something long hidden in myself. I turn away to look at the dry clipped lawn across the road, seven hens crawling up a hill, a fence of tall sunflowers, the first small brown leaves of fall blowing across the asphalt. When I turn back towards the water, the sun's high, all her body wrinkling that dress now, a long flank of sequins cascading upstream towards the bridge, their glimmer veiling her wrung out thighs, how she'd collapse hard in a folding chair, reaching for her cherry top drink, laughing for the DJ to cue up another, everyone waiting for her to name the song. I can almost hear the one she'd call. Years ago, I threw back my head dancing to it, strobes brightening the whole length of me, everyone in that dank room wanting me, or at least I thought they did. And here I am looking for the name of something I used to be in a darkening weed choke channel, restless, sad, joyous, autumn wind tickling my shirt. I chose that poem because of the big chill theme for our group. Um, and the next poem I'm going to read uh, is a poem in a kind of a scattered form um, where it spreads across the page, which you can't see anyway, but maybe you can hear. Um, but this is a form I worked on with this group. Um, so I really appreciate their support um, as I was figuring it out. Uh, this poem is called Tar. Driving down Oracle, Miracle Mile, Buena Vista, Fountain Blue, does the street's name seep into your tires? When you open the window, can you feel the syllables in your face? On River Road one night, stopped by a cloud of white cows on the asphalt, green fire from the petroleum refinery stacks rippled on the river like emerald. One cow reached her head in the window and licked the apple off your lap, her eyes glossy as freshly laid tar. You liked throwing your life away, watching it spark across the pavement like a tossed cigarette. Seth and Sebastian and Houston and Duluth, so many more years in the bags. Slag heaps and flame stacks. You never read the Bible, what did you know? You were your own neglectful mother yawning into a trash novel while you ran bra off all over town trying to get your own attention walking the glossy line running down the middle of Maine with your arms out. You thought if you could be normal, you could be loved, which was probably true. Now you think Miracle Mile will whisper miracles in your ear. On Speedway, you'll feel movement in your bones. On Oracle, you'll hear the song under the songs. Maybe it's the bass of tires on the rutted pavement. When you were pregnant, you lived on an intersection. If it was a boy, you'd name him Robert. If it was a girl, you'd name her Arabella. You lived your life like an atheist until you had a child. Now you pray every day. You should have never made eye contact with that cow. You should have never seen the moonlight on her wet nose. Her tongue smelled like hay. How can something so dead smell so alive? You'll always be at Gray's truck stop getting sneered at. You better make peace with, peace with that. You better tell yourself to put your shirt on. You better get busy gathering dead flowers like Crazy Mary. You better look up from your book before the cows go back in the barn. 
you heard a prayer of actual words in the beeping horns during last night's rush hour snarl. Maybe it's written on the stones under the white running water, there on the foam, there on the mouth sliming your neck, there on the chain snarling between your breast, there on the wrinkled sheets, there on the batter smooth pain on the wall, there on the cow's tongue hottest placenta, licking the fruit off your half rotted lap. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I think of uh, Sarah Wallace as a um, having a, it, for those who uh, follow baseball or if you, even if you don't, I'll explain, um, having a plus fastball. It's just um, people will have a, a plus fastball. It's, <laughs> it's just here it is, try to hit it. You know, I don't, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but um, just very strong. Um, you know, and every one of these poets has, you know, different uh, kind of styles of pitching, as it were. And um, yeah, I'm very happy to, uh, to be connected to them and hear their poems. Um, and before we start some conversation, Garrett, do you want to read us a little something? Yes. Um, so I'll just read a couple of short poems, um, old poems. Um, Hababo, H-A-B-A-B-O. What does that mean? I, well, I, I made it up. <laughs> um, in Philadelphia, the text is unbroken and the rain comes down in couplets. But this is not Philadelphia, and we're only a couple of sons of bitches, a pair of infield singles due to a generous scorekeeper. Life has no referential. It is only some unhappy hababo with unwanted hair in unwanted places. If we can only maintain an idiot's delight, that is enough. Enough to tide us over until the next pile of papers whispers our name in numbers. Um, so I actually wrote that when I, yeah, when I went to school with all these uh, poets um, long ago at NYU. Um, and another poem, Word Up. Who is Foghorn Leghorn? And what if the sky really is falling? I say, I say, I mean, what do my words really convey but the drop from a steep cliff and the cloud of smoke from a fallen phrase? Time is not the matter, nor the color of your shoes when you leave in the morning. This is a full revolution, an utterance around the earth. In God's version, it goes around the sun. Let your feet be perfumed sea bass and my phonemes the friends you never had. For what else is there in this world gone from mud to mad? Words are horizontal verticals orbiting our flesh like particles around an atom. For logos goes as woe goes like flies around fallen meat. In the end, the beginning, in the beginning, the end. I've heard the maggots singing, whispering to me, amen. Thank you. I'll introduce the conversation segment now. Okay. So, um, Let's start the conversation segment of our podcast. And let me find our questions here. So uh, we have some uh, questions and I'll just uh, ask them 
feel free to if you have any other questions that I don't we don't get to just speak up and I, I guess I'll uh, look for hands in the in the video either raise your hand or uh, do it with the icon. Um, first question is what is the what is the role of community in writing poetry and how does that relate to writing as a solitary process? Um, who wants to start the discussion on that? So I just think it's so interesting to think about that because um, I mean, for most of my life, I always thought about writing as a very solitary process, um, pen and paper and um, um, a writer hanging out in front of their computer and trying to make sense of the reality. Um, but more and more in most, more recent years, I started appreciating the community aspect of writing. And I think our group sort of is a testimony to that actually. Um, what happens when you're there alone, I feel um, one of the things that happens, um, for one thing, writing is an act of self-affirmation. Um, I think for all of us, if you're a poet, but especially for a woman poet, for example. But on the other hand, I think we uh, cannot help but, feeling, but feel those moments of self-doubt. Um, and I think when you are part of community, when you're part of um, community of peers, of other poets, of other artists, um, you gain a certain amount of support that you wouldn't otherwise. And for me, it has been invaluable, and I know for all of us. Um, so, I mean, thank you, Garrett, first of all, for putting together this group. Um, I don't think this would have happened without you. Um, but the other thing I was thinking about is also uh, the way poets often speak to social, political, um, cultural concerns and become part of the larger community as well. Um, in fact, um, the more I think about poetic voice, the more I thought about the, the idea that it's hard to have a completely solitary voice, that our voices are shaped so much by ancestral, familial, um, culture voices that exist in our heads. Um, and um, I think a group like ours is kind of, um, um, I think an evidence of that as well. Um, since we're coming from different realities, different culture backgrounds, and bring with us um, those traditions. Thank you. I think that the experience that we've had in this workshop proves it. You know, at least for me, I've gone too many months under lockdown and under curfew and under very strict laws here in Chile. And the possibility not only to speak but to have a profound dialogue based on on poems and you know not only corrections but you know a testimony of of where your own poem takes someone else and what happens to you when you hear when you're exposed to i don't know to eight poems a week it's so intense and uh i don't know i couldn't have 
uh, imagined certain lines or certain topics without that feedback. And that's perhaps a very small community, but it's, uh, it is so intense that it's, you know, perhaps even my make main community within the creative uh, field of my life. To, to jump on and echo what um, has been said, I find this sense of community so important to me that it has seeped into my writing process. So when I'm writing, I can feel the support in a way. Um, even when I'm generating a poem, I don't feel like I'm throwing it into the void and I can just sort of feel this invisible support around me, almost like a, a blanket being wrapped around me. Um, and it's, uh, it's not just nice, it's really energizing. Um, and I think it has energized my generative process. Yes, I'll just add that um, I think having um, workshops and um, you know any, anything like a workshop or reading or events uh, or things like this podcast, it just helps keep poetry alive because there's so many reasons not to write uh, poetry. <laughs> Uh, so much, so many reasons, you know, um, so, um, I think, I think it's, you know, necessary, um, having workshops and just getting together. Um, cause un unfortunately, yeah, that it's, it's being a poet in, in this country and I guess this world may perhaps it's, 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 um, very, uh, <laughs> a, a struggle, I think, um, to keep it going. Um, anyone else on this topic? Uh, all right, let's go to the next question. Oh, yeah, uh, Nelly. Um, yeah, thank you. I'll try to say something. I have many thoughts, but I'm not sure if I can say them um, <laughs> in a way that makes a lot of sense. But I was thinking about um, you know this this community specifically because I think there is a general question about like the role of community and you know, one's right, solitary writing process, but I can't help but think of just like these particular individuals um, because everyone is so uh, invested and, you know, so perceptive and has such keen, but like different um, intelligence and what they notice is so different from everyone else for the most part that uh, I get so much pleasure from hearing their comments on other people's poems um whenever I get to come to group it's it's just like um yeah it's a huge like wealth I feel like and even though for me um writing is still kind of a solitary process um like paying attention to any piece of writing but like one that one of us has written together I think is just magic like paying that kind of close attention together I think there's something really uh relaxing about that, that is really, yeah, sustaining for me. Um, um, yeah, and just in general for me, I really appreciate it for my work because I feel like it really raises the bar for both how I read and how I listen and um, what I bring to, what I bring to group um, because of the care people put into their work and their reading. Yeah, um, and I, I also find that um, being in this community has really expanded <coughs> my appreciation of different forms uh, and different 
poetry, different ways of being a poet, different tones you can take um, when you're a poet. Before I was in this group, and I guess I was kind of in a rut with my reading. I had my favorite poets and I would go to them all the time and they had a certain uh, way of writing poetry, um, a certain tone when they wrote. Um, but this group has really shown me there's so much richness and beauty to be found. Like, you know, Nellie's like matter of factness in her, her poetry, her adherence to the truth, right? Rodrigo's wonderful way he merges, like merges botany, all these different things into his poetry. Lucy's poetry always goes deep into the psyche. Taj's poetry is clear, right? And wonderful. And Viola's poetry with her like incredible like list of the quotidian made holy. It's just like, you know, this has enriched me so much and expanded what I turn to when I read and I'm hoping giving me breadth to my own writing. I think one of the interesting things about this is that it in some ways goes beyond the writing in that when we gather, you know, the first 20 minutes to 40 minutes to an hour, we're engaged in this sort of chat and this catch up and this, this is what our lives have been like this past week moment that always you know, it informs the poems that you hear. It informs, particularly the newer work, but it also leads a, lead, lends a little air of mystery to, well, is this poem really new or is this an older poem? Or, you know, I think we have reinforced our relationships throughout this experience and gotten to know each other in a deeper way that we, you know, through the years that have passed since graduate school, we we have evolved into different people and we still have our, you know, our bag of tricks of things that we do poetically, but we've also grown and come to a place of, of trusting each other to kind of remind us, to remind ourselves how we can keep pushing, how we can keep being authentic or challenging ourselves and looking for more ways to explore um, ourselves and the world through poems. And I feel like that's something that is a little different than in grad school. You know, you had that opportunity after a workshop to connect, to chat, but you didn't really, you know, it's a luxury that we've created for ourselves to have this space to really get to know each other in this deeper way that is really special. And I don't think that would have happened if, 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 if this were a strict, strict workshop under the auspices of a university or some other leadership, I think it would be really strange to pay to chit chat. Um, thank you. Rodrigo, if you don't mind, if we could go to Viola, since I don't think we've heard from her in the commentary yet. Did you have something to say, Viola? Yeah, just really quickly. Um, first of all, it's just so grateful to this group, so grateful and, Garrett, thank you so much again for bringing everyone together, you know, last, um, maybe like a year and a half ago. Um, just a couple things. I feel like also what has allowed, I, I, I am so grateful to this community, just like the, the amount of, you know, everyone here, they love poetry so um, in, intensely. And there have been times where we start at one o'clock Chicago time and we have ended, I feel like there was like one day where we ended at like 6 p.m. And so I, I do feel like there's like a level where time, like time, like time just like continues or like we don't even 
keep track of time because of just like the the group and how uh, closely everyone's reading the um, everyone's poems. Um, but I also like think about this idea of just like working through crisis, and I feel like this group really has like. Um, you know, like all that has happened with the year. And even when we first, you know, like even in graduate school, right after 9-11, and even now during this coronavirus, like I feel like we have all like kind of worked through the crisis, whether that's like writing individually, independently, or just like coming together and reading each other's work closely. So um, just so grateful. How is your writing process intertwined with your daily life? What things inspire you? How do you find time to write? That was my suggestion. I do not, about the recipe, I do not personally have a recipe to share. I haven't brought a recipe, um, but I know we have a lot of amazing food poems in this group and people writing about Manuka honey and roast pork and gumbo. And so, um, maybe there is a space for someone more eloquent than I to say something about food recipes and poems. The obvious thing is both poetry and um, food, it's, you, you know, use your mouth for them. Um, you know, and I think a lot of poets, they can, you know, it's like you're tasting the words. Um, you know, people who haven't gotten into poetry, it's because you're not probably, partially because you haven't read it aloud and taste, tasted the words. Um, I always promise myself that I would, that I'm going to write on a certain day, much in advance of the, of the workshop, but without the workshop and that pressure, I wouldn't be able to write. And uh, I never <clears throat> hold true to my promise of writing that day. And I have like a topic that I want to develop in poetry the whole week and I sit down sometimes the day before or sometimes the morning before the, of the workshop. And I sit down to write that poem specifically and something else comes up. And I stay with that. When I manage to work on things with much time in advance, uh, the poem becomes so baroque, so intricate that I can even I can hardly understand it. And, uh, but the recipe would be to have people to read your poems, you know, it's, it's great as a mirror, new, new topics come, come through and, and also hearing someone else's poem, you know, I, I've robbed so much from my, from, you know, from the people that I hear and it works, it works. That's a way to be like, to keep things fresh you know, listening to new things, especially listening. I get more by listening than by reading. Um, I, I think Sarah Wallace is looking for something that may be appropriate. <laughs> yes, um, so I am looking for this poem, recipe poem I wrote uh, called Gumbo. And this was a found poem, um, meaning that I just decided it would be fun to write a poem that was based on actual lines from a cookbook. And I had this cookbook on my bookshelf. It was 1958, uh, junior league cookbook from Baton Rouge. And um, it had this section called How Men Cook. 
which was, uh, I'm sorry to say mocking men cooking, but uh, anyway, they had this wonderful, uh, hilarious uh, recipe for gumbo that I just decided to take the recipe and sort of intertwine it um, with sort of a cinematic narrative. So uh, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll read it. Um, so this is called gumbo. First you make a roux. Stand in front of the skillet, the flame on low, and it's 90 degrees outside with 95% humidity, but you stir in slow circles, watching the small red pepper sway listlessly on the bush outside the shotgun's open back door for 45 minutes until the roux turns nut brown. Then you add the holy trinity, the celery, green pepper, onion, the cut grass smell tickling your nose, a pickup backfiring outside the door, someone slamming the tailgate, scraping and yelling where someone, could it be your cousin Jeremy, is putting their hunting dogs inside. Then add the shrimp stirring constantly and shift to one side of the stove because the sun's crawled up the rough floorboards now, stinging your calves like red ants, like chiggers, and you can see the full truck you can see in the bed and there's a coyote laid out dead, set the shrimp aside. Her legs, her splayed claws already stiffening, her nipples descended and chapped from nursing. Someone's thrown three rifles back there with her, tackle box, tarp. Smother the okra and onions in oil, then add the tomatoes. Remembering the tender pink bottoms of your mother's bare feet as she crawled under the smokehouse trying to rescue mulling kittens from the river and the sap. Return the shrimp with the roux and simmer, stirring through the long afternoon, listening to the boats channeling down the oily river, looking past the two tightly curtained rooms where the fan and your cracked open book wait to the shut door in the main room behind which your husband sits. Watch the shadows crawl under the door, the backyard turning purple then black, remembering the Christmas you got married when your mother-in-law gave you amber earrings and a short peach-colored nightie, like the women were your fault or maybe she just felt for you. Serve over rice with more Tabasco than the men like. Stare at <laughs> dead coyote eating gumbo in a chinette bowl. It's not that you blame your mother for leaving, you just wish it had been you. Thanks. Thanks, Tosh, for reminding me about that poem. Was that was your poem, Sarah? Yeah. Oh wow! First, <laughs> I thought you were reading a recipe. That was, that was great. I was um, a recipe. Oh okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I will quickly add that I think as we have produced so many poems throughout the year, that it is one of the the recurring themes of this is that you get to Friday or Saturday, you know, workshop is coming and you have it and you want to deliver something and you start thinking about what can make for a good poem. So what can get what can provide sensory details, what can get emotional, what can have notes of observation to it and returning to food is something that we've done times and times again consistently in different ways and in a lot of beautiful ways that you know and that's why Sarah's poem stuck with me so much because I did think it was such an interesting merge of the found poem but also her story and things 
that she's been interested in and, and, and thematics that she's turned to from time to time. So yeah, and uh, we, we, you gotta eat. Yeah, just, I totally agree with what Taj said. And also um, not really food recipes, but just in case anybody listening, um, you know, is in a group or wants to start one, it's been fun sometimes to have some challenges or prompts or optional directions from the group you know, to work from week to week too. I mean, yeah, so we have done like using a line of someone else's poem or, you know, working with a certain sense. Or I remember a challenge early on that I thought was fun was um, trying to write in a style that wasn't your usual or doing something that was not what you usually do. But then more recently we've tried, you know, a form or two, but yeah. I don't know. I just wanted to bring that up in case. It seems like it might be useful. Thank you, um, Nelly. Um, I'd like to go to Aaron to speak on whatever he wants. Um, Aaron always has something interesting to say, say about um, poetry or, or fiction or art or music. Um, yeah, I'm a kind of a drop a dropout from this workshop. I dropped out of this workshop, so I can't speak. I'm going back to get my GED pretty soon, though. So. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I write, I mean, I guess I could talk about the, uh, like, uh, <clears throat> how it's intertwined with my daily life. Um, like, I've been writing prose lately, and so I write every day, um, like, five days a week. And then I leave the weekends for, like, um, for not serious prose or maybe even poetry if I feel like I can write a poem. So it's like, it's like a mullet. It's like business up top, party in the back, business during the week, prose, poetry on the weekends, let my hair down a little bit. Um, but mostly um, it's drudgery to write and try and produce lots of prose. It's better, to, it's, it's more in, enjoyable to like, to write something where you, you can be satisfied with a um, hundred words instead of like 3000 words or something. I don't know. And then being a poet, I feel like I'm cursed because I have to look at every line, every sentence, like it's a line, you know? And so you end up like, I mean, think as a, as a poet, you're, you're always, you're responsible for every line, right? Like every line has to be, um, worth its own line and but prose especially like fiction like novels i don't think they uh always like hold themselves to that standard um but being a poet you you hold yourself to that standard like you can't not and so it makes for uh everything takes a really long time like to to uh yeah just to read and read your work and to to revise it and I don't know. So yeah, um, as Aaron mentioned, he's um, he's focused on he's he, he's a poet and he's but he writes fiction too, so he's he's focused on that. Where were we? Uh, what poem or poet has inspired your poetry or life the most, and why? So um, this is this has always been an important question for me, and I think anyone who who is bilingual and writes poetry in two languages. Perhaps like Rodrigo, um, 
you know, where do you claim your influence? And for me, it's always been both, always since I've come to the US, it's been both uh, Polish and American poetry. And um, from Polish poets, it definitely would be Wisława Szymborska and um, many others, but especially Wisława Szymborska and Bolesław Leśpian. Um, so I'm sure most people are familiar with Szymborska. Um, but I remember reading uh, her poem soliloquy for Cassandra when I was um, in middle school and uh, trying to memorize that poem and uh, just enjoying the voice of authority in that poem. Um, and this was the time when we didn't study many women poets. Um, so it's really wonderful to, to read Szymborska and see someone who confronts the question of what does it mean to be um, a poet? What does it mean to be a visionary? Um, and I think this is a conception that has shaped my poetry, actually. Um, both the, the idea of visionary poetry, but also the skepticism that Szymborska expresses in her poem. Um, for her, for her uh, Cassandra is kind of a failed figure because um, she looks through, she looks at the human life from above through universal concepts. Um, well, what she should have done is focusing on the earthly, on uh, the ordinary, the everyday kind of suffering. Um, so th th this is definitely um, a question that has been on my mind for many years. Um, Bolesław Leśmian is a, a Polish Jewish poet um, who wrote in the time between the two wars. Um, and what stood out for me is his treatment of nature. Um, sort of nature as a symbol of something, but also nature as sort of the sensual uh, cauldron of life, um, magical space. Um, you know, self-generating realities of nature that he turns into something mysterious and interesting. Um, and that has definitely shaped my poetry as well. But apart from that, I have been influenced by many American poets and especially our teachers, um, Philip Levine, Galway Canal, and Sharon Alt, and many, many others. But I just wanted to talk about those two. Thank you, Lucina. Actually, I'll take this one. Um, I, yeah, I'd like to share a poet that I've been, um, I don't know, I found a kindred soul in um, and someone that's maybe it's not as, as well read. I think I've been, you know, influenced by a lot of poets, but this one um, is Jack, Jack Spicer. Um, uh, this poem called The Unvert Manifesto. <laughs> so um, I, I think I have different styles of of my writing, but um, I definitely um, feel a kindred with uh, Dada, and I think of him as an American, uh, an American Dada poet. Um, but it's it's the Unvert Manifesto. It's very bizarre and it's uh, seemingly random. And he's I don't know. He talks about <laughs> masturbation, and um, I don't know. It's kind of like I've never read read Willem Reich, but it, it's kind of Reichian. It seems like. So he's, he's talking about something called Mertz, this uh, this sort of 
mysterious thing called Mertz in the poem. And it's kind of sexual and it's kind of um, uh, mysterious and unnameable. But um, the, the, the poem line by line, it's, it's, it's seemingly completely random. Um, and, um, you know, like going back to the baseball analogy, it's like a, a knuckleball pitcher. Well, a knuckleball is a, uh, is a pitch where um, you grip it um, so that you're almost, you're not really, um, you just kind of grip it with your knuckles kind of, and you, it's, it's almost, you're just, I think maybe kind of like pushing the ball <laughs> to the plate and the wind just um, moves the ball in any direction so you, you even the pitcher doesn't know where it's going to go and um i've read that his writing his um his writing philosophy it's it's almost like you're um you're um you're not writing the poem your ego's not writing the poem it, it's just your it, the poem is writing through you and i find that that sort of um unpredictability it can add freshness and uh you know you don't you don't know where it's gonna go that's one of the things i like about um, poetry and there's other people in that genre i think actually aaron <laughs> aaron balkan um his poems are many of his poems are like that and um uh i guess dean young um but um yeah other other people uh what are your poems uh and poets you're influenced by i know they're probably have a lot of influences. Uh, mm. Should I, oh, Rodrigo? Yeah, um, one thing that has happened to me here is that everyone makes so many references to other authors and that suits me uh, very well because I'm an unfaithful reader. So I'm happy to, to leave behind whichever poet I, I admire and welcome new voices and new authors. So there is this group I've, you know, I've browsed so with, you know, through many other authors because I don't know, I kind of jump through time and I can be stuck on Christopher Smart and then jump to Japanese poetry to Ryoku and go back to the Polish authors that which I really love. You know, I don't know where I can get this this notion of you know of being in place in time in in the evolution of ideas of culture that I get through Herbert and all this cerebral thing through humor and like-heartedness. Uh, you know, that's something that I would like to achieve someday. Uh, and I see it so clearly and so easily in Polish poets, you know, Herbert and Sagajewski, Krynyski, etc. And poets that I have to read in, in Spanish or sometimes in, in English, depending what translation comes first. And they seem so different in each translation. And so I'm, I'm going through a phase in which I, I, I like to read absolutely everything and not stick to a, a single, uh, single aesthetics. I want to be, you know, influenced. Uh, I want to be permeable. I want to change constantly. That's, uh, and that's something that, that happens, especially in a workshop or this kind of workshop where I feel 
uh, not only stimulated, but somehow contained. And uh, I've never known, how, I, I never knew how much uh, this, this feeling was, was important. Perhaps when we met some decades ago, <laughs> when we met some decades ago, uh, you know, there was this, uh, this, this strength or, or this, you know, coming out and which I don't know if you needed people to contain your imagination or I wasn't in, I, I wasn't, I didn't think it was uh, important to, to see if everyone understood what I was writing. I just wanted to get it out there, however it came out. And now I'm, you know, fascinated with dialogue. And when they, when they recommend uh, new authors, I feel that that's a continuation with the dialogue or uh, somebody else comes in with the, with the poetry. And what, what happens is that like, like uh, Lucy was talking about, the, about, you know, writing in two languages, is that you kind of get lost in both languages because you, you're so conscious about the limits uh, or about, you know, it's like multiplying by two, whatever limit you have. And uh, so when you read other poems, uh, you are so aware that the act of reading and understanding is also an act of translation, that you're stuck within the fibers of language. So it's great to be stuck there when you have uh, good and, you know, well-intentioned recommendations for poets. How can we grow poetry? Um, I'll just set that up a little bit. So obviously poetry, <laughs> if you compare it to the different um, art, art mediums, it's, um, you know, the following is very uh, fervent, but, um, you know, the audience is fervent, but small. And, you know, we could go into the many different reasons why people don't read poetry, um, which is maybe time for another, um, podcast, but I think what are ways can, that poetry can grow? Um, personally, I, I think, um, you know, uh, Richard Blanco, um, who read for Obama during the 2013 inauguration, used to think that, you know, okay, like I said, the audience for poetry was, you know, um, passionate, but small. And then he read at the inauguration, um, and then he just got all kinds of people um, coming up to him on the street and getting requests to read in unusual places like, I don't know, it was like the coast with reading for the Coast Guard or something like that. Um, but I think, you know, um, just just like, um, you know, when I take my family to a baseball game or something, it's like, they don't really care about baseball. <laughs> But it's marketed uh, so well that um, you know it's people still enjoy it if they they go to a ball game. So I don't, I don't know if um, anyone wants to has thoughts on that. How can we grow poetry? You know, I teach first, second, and third graders, and I feel like um, I have like a responsibility to teach them. Whether it's and it's all aspects of poetry, whether that's like memorizing a poem or reading a poem, reciting a poem, or um, just like sharing a poem or symbolize in, um, it's actually a Montessori classroom that I teach. And one of the works that we teach is like symbolizing the function of each of the words. So students can 
write the poem and then they'll symbolize, oh, this is an article. An article is given the light blue triangle. And so that's, you know, like whether it's like symbolizing poems or just, I also feel like there are just, you know, ways to get students interested, whether that's learning haiku or um, learning, you know, just like other sijo, which is like a Korean um, form. But I think it's also important just to um, encourage and kind of teach it even if it's really young. And to also, I think the most important is to try to make it as accessible as possible so that it's it's something where everyone kind of um, can read it and maybe um, not feel it, but read it. And so, which kind of, you know, like, I feel like also like Sharon and Phil, um, you know, they, they do so beautifully, like just like to make it as accessible and narrative. Um, so I guess, I guess that's the way to grow it. You know, I, I also feel like in, with my own family, like, you know, like reading a poem before like a Thanksgiving gathering or, you know, reading as much poetry as possible. And I, I think my children probably like, you know, they roll their eyes. They're really just like, you know, done with how many poems we can read in a day. But um, yeah, I think it's just to make it accessible and to share it. That would be my answer. Thank you, Viola. But by the way, she was um, Sharon and Phil that she was referring to Sharon Olds and Phil Levine for the audience, um, two of our teachers that many of us had, um, Rodrigo. We were chatting about this uh, yesterday, Garrett, and uh, I mentioned something. I, I think that it's very important for the poets to uh, wander off uh, from their genre, from, uh, from poetry itself, and apply it to other kinds of writing. I really love when, when poets, for example, write about the visual arts, not as a, as a person that you know, is an expert of visual arts, but they apply that sensibility elsewhere. And that's how they manage to, to, to gather like a new flock of, of, uh, of readers and, and you know, convince them to, to cross this frontier towards poetry. Sometimes poetry is too intimidating and people think that there is something there to decipher or even, they, they even feel stupid because they don't like something as if they weren't allowed to, to, you know, to not like it. So, you know, to go into essays or, or like, I, like Aaron goes into prose, I think it's a great idea or even trying out new mediums like doing yourself some some kind of art or movies or videos. I think that's a great idea to go out into other genres and to look for, for readers. I don't think you can and, grow poetry. Or you can just <laughs> or you can just talk about literature as a whole. No, I don't think you can grow it. I don't I think it's the one thing that that you can't ever convince people to like, except little kids. I think you could teach it to little kids and then you you kind of I think you can like create future fans uh, or future writers and little kids. But I think that like the, the, for me, the beauty of poetry is that you don't have, it doesn't, you don't have to sell it. And like, it lives on whether people read it or not, or whether like non uh, poetry fans read it. And so, you know, um, it's the one thing that I think can like kind of, it's one of the few things I think that can live outside of the marketplace. Um, and so that's pretty rare, 
I think. And so I don't think poetry even needs anyone else. <laughs> it, that's just sort of the way. Yeah, that, you know, kids kids like poetry, but as when people get older, they, they um, you know, I think it's the way we teach poetry, um, you know, heavy on the analysis and explication, which is necessary to understand poems as they get more and more, you know, um, complex, but, um, you know, pe people stop reading poetry aloud. And I think that's one of the keys, um, you know, because, you know, if you, as a well, former, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say like in your, your poems, you always have these subtle T.S. Eliot references, you know, where you'll, 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 you'll riff on a line from uh, uh, Proof Rock or something. Um, and I think like, how could you expect anyone to, uh, who does like, that's, a, that's asking a lot to expect someone to sort of uh, appreciate that. Um, but, you know, for a poet, every poet can read your poem and appreciate that, um, you know, so I don't know. Um, I don't think poetry should have to sell itself. I mean, I, I think there's an advantage, you know, that poetry has is you don't, you know, we're so, uh, people have given up on trying to sell poetry. <laughs> um, so they don't really think about uh, selling out or um, things like that. But um, yeah, like I said before, with um, for me, I don't, I don't see like po like poetry and film and you know and things like because I I see art in in sports, you know, like baseball or basketball. It's you know, obviously, it's very uh, um, makes a lot of money and has a lot of eyeballs and fans. But like baseball, you know. A lot of people don't don't know what the fuck's going on when they watch a sports game, <laughs> and um, but so I don't know. It, it, it's it's sort of hard to um, you know uh, convince people that like poetry is not really that much different than different than baseball or basketball or film or um, music or dance. It's you know. I think there's a little bit of reluct reluctance to market it. And then there's there's so many different reasons why people don't read poetry. You know, uh, I don't know, again, I don't know if we have time to go at every single one. There's the mo the modernist, um, you know, definitely the modernist movement in poetry definitely made it, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I think before, yeah, before modernism, I think poetry was much more popular and I, for personally, instead of um, making it everything accessible, I, I think there's room for um, complexity in, in poems and there's room, it's definitely valid to make things accessible too. It's sort of like a personal choice, but um, yeah, I guess I have this vision for poetry that it, it's, you know, I'm not gonna say it's it's going to, uh, we're gonna make all make millions of dollars or, things like that, but, um, you know, it's, it's a value, it's a, it's a quality product <laughs> and it has a lot to offer that things other mediums don't have, uh, that it slows time down. And in today's fast paced society, it's, um, you know, we don't really have a lot of things that where we can slow down and just, um, 
you know, examine someone's consciousness and, um, you know, um, let's see, I'm trying not to use that cliche here, but um, just appreciate the beauty in, in life and, um, and contemplate. Um, so, well, thank, thank you so much. I uh, love everyone's writing in this group and I, yeah, I'd like to share it with the world. So yeah, look, look everyone up in this group. Uh, some people have books out, some people have, are published in journals. Um, so um, Natalie, thank you so much for having us. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us today on the podcast. We we're so grateful that you all were here. Thank you again to all of our guests, Garrett Karai, Nellie Bridge, Aaron Balkin, Lucina Prostko, Taj Greenlee, Viola Lee, Rodrigo Rojas, and Sarah Wallace for sharing your work with us today and for your generous conversation. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.